to the Professional Engineer Podcast. On this podcast, we explore the amazing world of engineering and the professional engineers who have the opportunity to design the future infrastructure of our country. I am your host, Matt Dersheimer. I am a licensed professional civil engineer with a resume that includes over a billion dollars of new heavy civil design and construction projects. I specialize in bridge design and the design build method of project delivery. And I guess I'm now a podcaster. In today's episode and over the course of the next few episodes, I'm going to do a deep dive into the projects that I've worked on so far in my career. We're going to go back to my college days where I did research at the University of South Florida, both undergraduate and graduate research. And then we are going to talk about my professional internship that I had at Disney World in Orlando, where I worked for Magic Kingdom Engineering Services. And then we are going to talk about the construction job that I had as a field engineer building the I-4 Leroy Selman Interchange in Tampa, Florida. And then finally, we're going to talk about all of the projects I have participated in uh, with increasing levels of responsibility on the heavy civil infrastructure design side, which is the position that I'm currently in. But the focus of this podcast is going to be entirely on the research that I did at USF and the other jobs and projects that I have we will cover in future episodes. I'm going to start off by explaining how I actually got into research in college. And I am so happy that I had this opportunity When I was starting school through my freshman and and well through my sophomore year, I was actually in the mechanical engineering program, and I didn't really have any sort of direction. I didn't know where I was going. But then I ended up taking a class called statics, which is a very uh, base level class in engineering statics, which is the analysis of bodies at rest. And in this class, it's really kind of like the baseline of civil engineering. We use statics every day in structural analysis in civil engineering. And that class really opened up my eyes into what a civil engineer actually could do. I I saw myself being able to design a bridge, design a building, and I knew that that was the path I wanted to go down. And in part, that's due to the professor of that class. His name was Dr. Stokes. And I actually went into his office hours one day and I kind of told him like, hey, I actually like this type of static stuff. This is the first class where I've actually been inspired to really work on the, the the assignments that you're giving us. And through those office hours, I kind of asked him like, hey, you know, tell me about your career so far. What, what have you done? What do you do? And that's where he told me he started out just like in my position, not having a solid idea of exactly what he wanted to do. He, he got out of the military and he started going to school. And Uh, Eventually, he found himself doing research actually at USF, and he continued on to ultimately get his doctorate at USF. But what he emphasized to me is how important research was to him, and he actually recommended for me to pursue it. And from that office hour meeting, he gave me the contact information for the professors who are leading research at USF. And then from there, I went and talked with them, sat down with them, told them my interests, and they happened to have an opportunity for me to start doing research there. And that began my journey. 
So the first research project that I did, and actually this lasted out through the entirety of my undergraduate career, was oxygen diffusion through FRP. So I'm going to break this down. FRP first, which stands for fiber reinforced polymers, uh, which is essentially epoxy surrounding a fabric. Now that fabric is generally composed of two separate components. One, it could be carbon-based, and the other one, it could be glass-based. So that's how you end up with the abbreviations CFRP, carbon fiber reinforced polymers, or GFRP, glass glass fiber reinforced polymers. And I did research on both of those. And so we we were analyzing how different systems and different installation methods of this FRP would affect the diffusion of oxygen through that material. And so the reason why we were doing this research is this type of FRP is used in structural applications for rehabilitation. Now it provides structural capacity to the material, but it also provides corrosion resistance to the material that it is placed on. Generally, this type of stuff is installed on piling out in water that is subject to salt spray because that's a very highly corrosive condition, highly corrosive environment that a structure encounters. And some of the stuff that's, you know, 40, 50 years old is experiencing essentially rusting of the steel inside the concrete. And the owner of that bridge has chosen to. Uh, repair that area, and then actually to wrap that area around with this CFRP or GFRP material. So this research project wanted to evaluate how effective that was in inhibiting corrosion. So one of the requirements for corrosion to occur is to have oxygen present. And this research wanted to, we wanted to evaluate commercially available FRP products and different methods of installing those FRP products to determine how effective those products are to resisting the diffusion of oxygen. So real quick, what the diffusion of oxygen means is essentially diffusion, the technical term, and I'm looking it up right now, the technical term is the uh, is the net movement of anything from a region of a higher concentration to a region of a lower concentration. So what that meant in our application here is we were evaluating how oxygen would move from a higher concentration environment to a lower concentration environment. So the, the lower concentration environment would be essentially the material that we are protecting. Then the higher concentration uh, would be the outside air, basically. Now, the actual research and experimentation that we did, uh, and I'm going to talk about my specific responsibilities. So remember, this is me back as a sophomore going into a junior year of college. So uh, I haven't even yet taken my corrosion course, uh, which would come actually after I did this class or after I did this research. But my responsibility was to administer the tests that was designed by the graduate researcher who was working towards his PhD. He designed the testing methodology for his research. 
And what that test was is he designed an apparatus that would allow a, a, a circular section of FRP to be placed in between two plates. And on the upper side of that plate, or the, the upper component of the apparatus, he would pump in concentrated oxygen. And then on the bottom side would be the lesser concentration area. And there would be a cell there that would actually measure the presence of oxygen there. And then the critical component was you actually had to create a, an airtight seal around this in order to ensure that we were not uh, pushing air through. It was more so just diffusing air through. I'm sorry, diffusing oxygen through. And so it was my job to perform hundreds of these tests. And I'm going to tell you essentially what that process was from, hey, this is the test that I need you to run to me uh, preparing the specimens, uh, setting up the test, running the test. And then um, I didn't help too much on the the final component, which is essentially processing the data and and arriving to conclusions. But I, I did do a little bit of that. And I'll let you know what I learned from that. So the test, we had about four different commercial companies donate their products to us for evaluation. So we had carbon fiber reinforced polymers. We had glass fiber reinforced polymers, as well as the proprietary epoxy resins that that are used to essentially infiltrate and, and fill in these polymers for them to give them their, their strength, their properties, their and all the characteristics that make up that proprietary product. So they came in many different types, but essentially the carbon fiber came in uh, a unidirectional, as in all the fibers all pointed one direction, as well as a bidirectional where they were woven. uh, They essentially almost, you, you weave two unidirectional patterns together to create a weave. So that came in that type of configuration, the unidirectional and the bidirectional carbon fiber. And then the glass fiber only came in that unidirectional configuration. And then the epoxies came in all sort of different colors. There was a blue epoxy. There was a a brownish epoxy. Uh, I think there was a clear epoxy as well. Uh, and, And these are from major companies that manufacture them. Uh, the one that comes to mind is like BASF manufactures them. Sika, Sikador uh, are some of the manufacturers as well. And so with these different products in hand, the researcher said, okay, I would like to evaluate this specific product with this type of FRP in this type of installation. So he would say, hey, I would like a single layer of FRP applied or a double layer of FRP applied. How about I'm going to take these two unidirectional carbon fibers standalone and I'm going to turn 190 degrees. We're going to do two layers and we're going to evaluate how that works. So after he told me the specimen that he wanted to evaluate, I would go and prepare that specimen. So, for example, he said, I would like you to use the BASF product and I would like you to install a single layer of carbon fiber reinforcement in it. So I would go ahead and do that. I would grab the actual components of the epoxy and all of them were two part components. So you mix two components of the epoxy together in the specified ratio, generally either a one to one ratio or a two to one ratio. You would mix those together per the specifications. 
Um, and then we would actually lay down a layer of plastic. Then we would, and this was kind of the challenge. We needed to make sure that we properly installed this stuff. So we would lay down a layer of plastic. Uh, then we would put down a thin layer of epoxy. And then we would put the material on it, begin massaging the FRP through the uh, through the epoxy to make sure that it all got entrained into it. Then we would add another layer of epoxy on top of it. And uh, not, not another layer, but another uh, installation of it. Then we would continue to massage. Then finally we would put, um, put a top layer of plastic over it. And then we would flatten it out. Because we didn't want it super thick. We want it to be the, the required installation, which isn't too thick. No more than, uh, no more than probably, gosh, a quarter of an inch in reality. Uh, probably closer to an eighth of an inch in some instances. And then finally, and this is where it was actually pretty challenging, We uh, there's two methods to actually set up this thing because we made a big sheet probably about 12 inches by 12 inches, maybe 18 inches by 18 inches. And our apparatus to actually measure it was probably about four inches in diameter. So then when that epoxy had cured to a certain level but not completely hardened, I would come back and actually cut out the circles required to uh, to actually install it in our testing apparatus. And now while it was curing, we weighed it down to make sure that we provided a, a nice uh, thin layer of CFRP or GFRP that we developed or that we that we constructed there. So after preparing that specimen, we then went to perform the tests. So what that entailed is we we took our completed specimen already cut to the correct shape and uh, we had essentially two plates two circular plates that had bolts around them and then a then two gaskets so on the top apparatus we had a um, an input device for the oxygen which we had the oxygen oxygen sent up to a tank and then we had on the bottom side, we had the sensor to evaluate the concentration of oxygen. So uh, I would go ahead and take apart the apparatus from the previous test, uh, make sure everything was clean, and begin to set up for the next test. So I would take the, the, the specimen, and I would put it in between those two membranes. Then I would tighten down these bolts. Then I would set it in a isolated part of the lab to make sure we had as minimal impact because it was a very sensitive test. We're measuring minute concentrations of oxygen, essentially diffusing, percolating, whatever the proper word is, diffusing through that material. And it it was very sensitive. So we we actually put up a tart, put up a plastic around it because we didn't want any sort of influence aside from the test itself. So I would hook up the oxygen to the top of it. Then I would collect. Uh, I would connect the electrical leads to the computer, which would actually measure the concentration of oxygen. So we would turn the oxygen on, just not pumping oxygen into it. Just a very small amount of oxygen was actually needed to create this very high concentration in the top or in the upper part. And then on the bottom part, we would. Um, begin our measurements. So we would perform the test for 24 hours, 40 hours, 72 hours. We would uh, evaluate that test and record it continuously at like one second interval or a minute interval. I actually don't recall the interval that we would record it on. And that was our test that we ended up repeating hundreds of times. I, I, I think I did this hundreds of times throughout the two or so years that I did research on this project. And so now what did we learn from that? 
I can tell you what I specifically learned and some of the conclusions that we arrived to in the paper is that in terms of diffusion of oxygen, the products that actually perform the best were when we use like the single layer of material. And I think that's partly in due to insulation methods. So when we had two, two layers of that epoxy resin, I think there was just a, a poor condition developed where we almost had too much epoxy and we weren't able to properly compress that section. Uh, so I think voids developed, which allowed for oxygen to diffuse more regularly. But the, the best performing stuff was the uh, single layer of the CFRP product. But overall, every installation did prove to significantly reduce the amount of diffusion of oxygen, which essentially proved and confirmed that this method of corrosion mitigation being implemented was going to accomplish what the owner intends for it to accomplish, which is to extend the life of the structure and to essentially stop and essentially stop the corrosion that has been occurring right in its tracks. So I spent about one and a half to two years of my undergraduate career doing this oxygen diffusion research on uh, CFRP and GFRP products. When I went into my graduate studies, I ended up working on several different research projects as I was working with other uh, researchers at the time, helping out on their projects. Now, during my graduate studies, I probably worked on four or so different research projects, but of those projects, one took up most of my time, but I do want to briefly hit on a few of the other ones. So I'm going to hit on those first, and then I'm going to go into my big project. One of these projects was a cathodic protection system for existing steel H-piles. Uh, this was for a bridge out in the Everglades that we were installing cathodic protection into, which is a very routine practice for uh, steel piles in corrosive environments. Uh, but what wasn't routine is that we actually wanted to uh, take measurements on how quickly the cathodic protection system, and specifically the anodes of the cathodic protection system, how quickly they would uh, do their job, which is to prevent corrosion. And as a part of them doing their job, these zinc anodes actually degrade. They, they lose mass. And that's how they actually protect the steel from corrosion. And this research project wanted to evaluate how quickly that was occurring for this specific site. This project gave me a lot of hands-on experience, uh, both setting up the tests and the anodes in the lab, as well as we actually went out to site and assisted in the installation of the anodes, as well as the monitoring and transmitting system for those results. So essentially what the test was is we had the anodes, the zinc anodes that would be installed about 15 or 20 feet underwater. And then we had large diameter cables, probably a quarter inch diameter cable that would be connected to that anode that would run up, up and it, it attached to the pile to make sure it didn't drift in the water. And it would run up to a central monitoring system that would evaluate the uh, condition of the anode. And I was able to uh, help make these attachments to the anode as well as the, uh, the connection points to where we would hook it up in the field. And I was able to do the soldering for that, which was fun. I, at the time, I'd only done a little bit of soldering uh, in class for experimental stress analysis, but that's a different discussion. 
and I had not done anything of this large diameter wire. A quarter inch cable is pretty big, especially when you're used to using something, you know, a little bit larger than uh, than a hair, <laughs> just over a piece of string. Now, this project occurred at the near end of my graduate career, so unfortunately, I don't have any sort of results to report to you guys. Now, the next research project is actually going to lead into the main scope of my research while at USF, and it has to do with drilled shafts. So I'm going to briefly explain what a drilled shaft is. Drilled shafts are foundations used in the construction of bridges and buildings. What it consists of is taking a giant auger anywhere from 36 inches all the way up to uh, you know, like 10, 12 foot in diameter, huge diameters, uh, taking this auger and drilling down into the ground and then filling that hole with concrete and uh, rebar, uh, which composes up of the drilled shaft. Now, this research was on how to evaluate the integrity of that column after you've placed the concrete. Because just by the, the inherent nature of this type of construction, you're drilling a hole into the ground, there is a very real susceptibility of that hole to partially cave in, which could compromise your shaft, where you do not necessarily add all the concrete that you need to the shaft because a portion of that shaft has actually filled with dirt instead of the concrete during the construction process. Now, there are two established methods to actually measure the integrity of the shaft. The first has been around for a while, and it's known as CSL, cross-sonic logging. And how that is done is when they construct the shaft, they actually tie some uh, tubes, steel tubes, to the rebar that gets dropped down into the concrete. And then after the concrete has cured, they drop in essentially a sonar, and from there, they take soundings all the way down the length of the shaft to see if any anomalies have developed. The second method, which is what my research essentially was about, is known as thermal integrity testing, where we use those same tubes, but instead of waiting till after the shaft has cured and the concrete is cured, we actually drop a, essentially a thermometer down each of those tubes while the concrete is curing and from there if we determine anomalies in the different tubes and there's multiple in there if the temperature is different than what is expected we can actually extrapolate that to what may have occurred there is there a bulge is there uh is the temperature higher indicating there's a bulge or is the temperature lower indicating that there is a void or or soil has actually filled in the space and the reason why we can do this is because concrete as it cures gives off heat it's known as the heat of hydration so so concrete when it's fully cured is obviously just ambient temperature but during the curing process it can reach 120 130 140 degrees and even higher, but we do want to control that. We don't want the concrete to get too hot because that introduces other problems. So it's a delicate balance in, in the process. And furthermore, it's actually a predictable heat that will be present 
based on when that concrete was initially mixed. So after the first eight hours, this is the temperature that the concrete can be. The first 12 hours, 18 hours, 24 hours, et cetera, et cetera. We can predict that curve because of the material science behind uh, everything that has gone into concrete. And we can determine that based on the mix design. Now, the professor that I worked under actually pioneered this technology, and that's why I was able to briefly work with this technology and this type of method while doing research under them. So what my specific task was is there is kind of an unknown portion of the shaft. During the majority of the length of the shaft, we are able to determine with high accuracy how it should perform. But at the very tops of the shaft and at the very tips of the shaft, essentially about five foot from the top and the tip, there is, it's a little bit less predictable because you're not ha having a nice uniform cross section of just concrete with uh, soil around it. Once you get closer to the tip, you actually are getting influenced from the heat on the sides of it as well as the heat underneath of it. So what I was doing was helping one of the researchers kind of help model this. And so what I did is we did research on a finite element program where we could actually begin to model the soil and the concrete to see if we can come up with a predictable pattern there. Now, it's actually pretty interesting uh, on actual real world projects that I have been a part of the construction of where we have had drilled shafts. We have actually used this testing methodology, the thermal integrity testing methodology to test the integrity of those drilled shafts. And it was really cool having actually done the research and, and worked behind the scenes of it then actually get to implement it directly out in the field and see the results that that came from it. Now, this brings me to the research project that I did the most time on while at the University of South Florida for my graduate research, and that it has to do with drilled shafts. So during the actual construction of the drilled shaft, they, they take the auger and they drill down into the earth. Now, these shafts can vary from, you know, 25 foot long is about the minimum you'll see, but some of these can be 200 foot long. And generally, most of the shafts will be between 40 foot to 80 foot long. And, and the engineer designing that and the geotechnical engineer designing these drilled shafts determine the length that is needed for the drilled shaft based on the, the soil conditions and the design requirements. But when they actually construct these drilled shafts, you are putting a giant hole in the ground. And if anyone's ever tried to dig a hole, eventually that hole wants to cave in. And once you get to these depths, that hole will cave in unless you implement some mitigation methods. Now, the industry already has a solution to this, and it is to use a drilling slurry. Uh, you see this in use in not only heavy civil type of construction and drilled shafts, but for uh, oil exploration and natural gas. Anytime a hole needs to get drilled into the ground at any sort of depths, they will use some sort of drilling slurry in order to maintain the integrity of that hole. So the research I was doing was focused around these drilling slurries. Now the work that I'm going to be telling you about was actually published underneath the title of Rapid Hydration of Mineral Slurries for Drilled Shafts. Uh, I was listed as an undergrad or as a graduate researcher on that report and I had a little bit of writing contribution and a lot of the uh, research and investigation and testing contribution. 
Uh, and you can actually find that. You can Google rapid hydration of mineral slurries for drilled shafts, or you can uh, type in uh, this code right here, and it's go to Google. You'll type in BDK-84-977-03. So big picture before I go any further, uh, there are generally two types of drilling slurries. One being a bentonite-based drilling slurry, which is essentially a clay and the second is a polymer slurry, which is uh, mostly synthetic, and, and I believe there might be some blends as well. Uh, but for the most part, bentonite clay-based and then synthetic polymer-based. Now, through my research, I ended up working with both of these types of products. And I must say, at least my personal opinion, the bentonite-based stuff is just easier to work with. The, the polymer stuff was really... I mean, it probably did it super effective in actual field applications, but man, it was messy to uh, to prepare and to clean. Uh, but man, it, it you stick your hand in that stuff and it comes out just super slick and super gooey, yet still having water-like consistency. It was kind of crazy. But for this report, the rapid hydration report, we were investigating a means to rapidly mix bentonite slurry. So... Generally, slurry is mixed in this large holding vat for essentially pumping into the excavation as the drill shaft is, is excavated using the auger. But we wanted to develop a method that could be used in lieu of that because uh, not every site can actually support a large water tanker to be brought and staged for construction. So generally the way med bentonite slurries are mixed is they'll take these bags generally they come 50 pound bags they'll dump them into the vat and there will be agitators in the vat that will mix that slurry over time and and after enough time in the agitator it will achieve the manufacturer's specifications for that slurry but we tested a system that could produce 220 gallons per minute of bentonite drilling slurry that met the manufacturer's specifications, as well as the volume demands required by the Florida Department of Transportation. Now, before I get into the testing component and the research component of this work, what was actually utilized is something called an eductor, which what that is, is it uses the Venturi effect, which, which an eductor uses water, say, traveling through a tube and by that water traveling through that tube, it actually can pull air or pull, uh, in our case, bentonite slurry along with it. So the first product we tested, picture this, was a, I believe is a two-inch diameter pipe. And then connected to and above that two-inch diameter pipe was a hopper. So uh, essentially a diagonal shaped box where we would feed in the, uh, the, the bentonite slurry and then we would pump water through that two-inch pipe and then that two inch pipe would actually or as the water flew through that pipe it would suck in and pull out the material from that hopper so some of the testing that we had to do to actually verify that the slurry met specifications was to perform a viscosity test now there were two ways that we performed the test one was with an automated viscosity meter that uh, essentially, there's a disc suspended on a rod from the reading machine. You would stick uh, the, the slurry uh, or a, a bowl of the slurry underneath that, and then you turn the machine on, and this disc would spin, and then from there, it would be able to, to, to determine the viscosity. 
but the method that we felt was easier to use and actually more reliable to use was the tried and true manual method, which we measured viscosity manually using a marsh funnel, which what that is, it's a, uh, the very tip of the funnel at the bottom has a probably about a two inch, very small diameter opening. And then the rest of the, uh, cone is conical shaped. Uh, and then at the top, there is a screen for you to pour your bentonite through so you don't get any chunks of uh, clay to clog up your test. And so what you do is, uh, it's it's a messy, messy application, is you uh, grab a sample of your uh, bentonite slurry and you plug the bottom with your finger and then you fill the cone up to a level that is prescribed on the cone and then you... Uh, get a stopwatch handy, you loop, you move your finger from the bottom, you turn on the stopwatch, and then once that, uh, once the water level or the bentonite level in the cone reaches a certain level, you stop the watch, and that right there is your viscosity. Now, viscosity has a unit of measurement of just seconds, and the target viscosity for uh, the FDOT specified bentonite slurries uh, is 24 seconds to 40 seconds and generally we were targeting I think 30 seconds or so was what we were targeting for our test with each of the different products. So here we are the final component is actually after that paper was published uh, we continued to do research on bentonite slurries and we actually procured an additional testing apparatus so in addition to performing our viscosity tests as well as our density tests the, the very basic stuff we obtained a filter press and i spent a lot of time iterating on this filter press so what we would do is we would take all these different brands of bentonite slurries and polymer slurries and we would mix them in different ratios mix design ratios within the manufacturer specifications and then we would test them so we would perform the viscosity test and then we would also perform this filter press test so what that amounts to is getting a very small sample size of the the mixed material and placing it inside of a container then at the bottom of that container is a uh, is a stainless steel mesh and then on top of that mess mesh is a uh, I'm going to say a piece of paper, but essentially a filter. And then what you do is you pour the bentonite slurry into there, and then you apply pressure to this system. And after a certain amount of time, you would then have some filtrate. So you will have pushed water through that filter, and then you will collect it below. And so you measure how long the process took, in order to collect a certain amount of water. And from there, we can begin to ascertain some information. Additionally, we actually saved that filter and we dried it and we measured the weight of that because when you actually uh, drain off all the water, there is a cake left behind, like the, the slurry cake. And from all that information, we, we did a lot of data gathering on this at different mixed designs. And I believe that ultimately made it into a report after I uh, graduated from the school. And that concludes my recollection of my college days where I did research at the University of South Florida. I actually had a great time remembering all this stuff because it's not something that I think about or I get a chance to talk about every day. Now, I hope I didn't make any mistakes in my recollection here. I did pull up some of my old uh, old emails and my old reports and, and 
uh, publications that were developed. Uh, so I hope I, I did everything accurate. If anyone has any questions about what I did or would like me to elaborate, please let me know. Uh, you can go ahead and email me at the show um, at the professional engineer podcast at gmail.com. And uh, I'd love to hear what you thought or if you had any questions. Now, again, if you enjoyed this podcast, I'm going to be coming out with more podcasts about my career, as well as I'm going to begin reaching out to others in our industry to hear about the exciting things that they are doing. Uh, So please make sure to subscribe to me on your favorite podcast app and then also leave a review. Uh, I hear from everybody that if you get reviews on these podcast apps, it will really help your podcast take off. And that is what I'm looking to do here. I really want to get the message out there of how amazing engineering is. And I believe this is the best medium to do so. So again, thank you very much. And I will see you again soon.